Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When American voters are asked what the most important issue is to them, the economy and jobs generally tops the list. But this fall, just before the midterms, when Gallup polled on that commonly asked question, the most important issue wasn't the economy or jobs. This is the issue that is on the ballot. This election is about health care. I got into this race because when my mom was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, she did not have health care. If they keep control of Congress, you better believe they're coming after your health care. The issue of health care shaped the outcome of House races, governor's races, and all sorts of other races all over the country. But since a Republican Senate, a Republican president, and a Democratic House seem unlikely to make a breakthrough on improving our health care system, the most inventive ideas have moved to cities, states, even the private sector. Here to talk about what could really shake up health care is John Gruber, an architect of the Affordable Care Act and a professor of economics at MIT, and Sarah Cliff, a senior policy correspondent at Vox and host of the podcast The Impact. John and Sarah, thanks for being here. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you. So um, first, let me just get some feedback on the assumption I just made that there's not going to be some sort of grand deal on improving health care at the national level in the next uh, couple of years. Sarah, does that sound right to you? That does sound right. You know, we're going into a Congress that is going to be divided with a Democratic-controlled House, Republicans in the Senate, and obviously President Trump in the White House. So, you know, I don't see any big movement on health care over the next two years. I see, you know, the Democrats in particular are going to take some time, refine their visions for kind of where they want to go next on health care, maybe Medicare for all. But they're kind of looking past 2020 at this point. The next two years don't really seem like the kind of space where we'll see really significant policymaking where I work in Washington. Hmm. John, do you feel similarly like you've kind of written off the national level for the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think what Sarah says is exactly right with two caveats. One caveat is I think there is a slight hope of something on prescription drugs in the sense that mm-hmm. that's the one place the Trump administration has made the most useful and innovative suggestions in a positive way. Um, not all positive, but at least move in the right direction thinking about this issue, and it's a hot issue. I think the chances are very low, but it's going to happen anywhere. It might happen there. The other issue is the last— Like what? Like what? Like, what like, kinds like for of example, innovative? the Trump administration has actually proposed quite a quite radical innovation, maybe even too radical, uh, which is that the U.S. citizens not pay any more for drugs than their counterparts in, Europeans. in Europe pay for the same drugs. Indeed, many Republicans have come out against this proposal as socialism and as— as 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 um, deterring innovation in the drug sector. But the fact that even say that opens a window to thinking that there might be some room, although I think the chances are very, very small. The other piece that Sarah mentioned is important is to remember the Democrats don't even know where they want to be. And because we have, you know, I, I think the Democrats uniformly support the gains of the Affordable Care Act. I think there's a Sarah can speak better than this, but I think there's a breath in the caucus between those who would sort of incrementally build in the Affordable Care Act and those who want a single payer system. And how are Democrats going to resolve that messaging going forward to 2020, I think, is an interesting issue as well. Hmm. Um, We will get to that. But, um, John, I just want to ask you, you know, you're somebody who helped create what became known as Romney Care here in Massachusetts, uh, what became known as Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act on the national level. Has it been weird for you over the past several years? We saw 2010, 2012, 2014, uh, you know, uh, health care for the people who had voted for it, for the politicians who had voted for it was an albatross around their neck. People lost their jobs because of it. Then fast forward to 2018 and it becomes 
you know, sort of top of mind for everybody. People have now gained jobs because they were in support of expanding the Affordable Care Act. Has it been weird for you to see this kind of seismic shift on this policy? Definitely gives me a little whiplash. I think what's weird is it's what I predicted would happen just four years later. So I knew health care would be a tough issue for the Democrats until 2014 because the law was passed, but it wasn't really delivering much. But I figured by 2014, it would be a positive to say, wow, we got this new insurance. We've changed. Insurers can no longer discriminate against citizens. It's heavily subsidized for many low-income Americans. Isn't this great? So I really was surprised at how negative it was in 2014 and, and 2016. It's now gotten to a point where I thought it would be in 2014 where people realize that this is a benefit for a large number of Americans and not really cost for many Americans at all. Um, and that most Americans are largely left alone by the Affordable Care Act. That was sort of the idea. So I feel happy that people now think it's a positive thing. Um, I just feel it's unfortunate it took sort of four years too long. Sarah, what have you thought as you sort of watch this progression? And as I mentioned, I mean, now you've got red states that are saying, yes, you know, we're still Republican and maybe we still support politicians who are really who voted against the Affordable Care Act. But we we want some of its provisions here in these states. You know, in my view, I think the thing that changed between 2014 and 2018 was the fact that Republicans tried to repeal it in a weird way bolstered a lot of Democrats. I think it wasn't just the benefits rolling out. It was the benefits rolling out, plus the threat of those benefits being taken away that catalyzed a lot of Democrats to run on health care. And one of the things you saw, like you're pointing out, Kara, is that you had three pretty conservative states, um, Utah, Nebraska, and Idaho, all vote to expand their Medicaid programs. This is a key feature of the Affordable Care Act to cover low-income Americans. It was supposed to exist in all 50 states, but a Supreme Court decision said it had to be optional. So you've seen this kind of mixed picture with generally liberal states adopting Medicaid expansion, some conservative states holding out. And I just think it was a really fascinating result to see these red states where Obamacare isn't popular at all saying, we have a lot of uninsured people. You know, we want to sign up for Medicaid expansion, even though our legislature hasn't done that yet. So you saw when this issue was taken to the voters, they were pretty excited to, you know, join up on this really key Obamacare program. So, uh, Sarah, let's talk about some of the innovative things that you see states doing. Um, Point me to some programs that you find particularly intriguing and you think are worth watching. Yeah. So even though I work in Washington, I'm a bit of a state and city government nerd. I think the most interesting things that are happening right now are actually at the local level. And this season of my podcast, The Impact, is all about state and local policy experiments. And one of the most exciting ones I think going on right now is happening in South Carolina with pregnant women. I think some people might know that we have a really serious problem in the United States when it comes to Maternal mortality and infant mortality, our rates are much, much higher than they should be for a developed country, you know, for a rich country like the United States. And South Carolina is actually doing something that is surprising and innovative to try and make sure more moms have healthy deliveries. They've started implementing this program statewide. They're the only ones doing it statewide where they have all of their moms on Medicaid, the program that covers low-income Americans, do their prenatal care visits in these big group sessions. So, you know, you don't just go in and get your blood pressure checked and the baby's heartbeat heard. 
you do that, and then you spend two hours talking to other pregnant women. And what they found is that these visits, they actually seem to reduce the rates of premature birth, which is the highest risk factor for infant death. And, you know, when you think about, well, what does having a dozen pregnant women just sitting in a room right. talking, That's how does that That's an amazing save... preventive thing, just sitting <laughs> right. around and, and chatting it's... is helping you, you know. It's yeah. cheap. It's not some like fancy piece of equipment that you need to install in um, you know each in each clinic. And the hypothesis that the researcher who's working on it thinks is that you're actually lowering stress among these pregnant women. That pregnancy, you know, I just had a baby six months ago. Pregnancy is a very stressful, confusing time. And when you lower stress, it actually changes the body. It reduces inflammation in the body. It makes the body kind of a more comfortable, easier place for a little baby to hang out longer and not be born premature. So it was really a policy experiment I was skeptical of when I went into reporting about it. But the more data I read, the more of the sessions I attended, it really seemed like something, you know, innovative and and not hard for other states to scale up. And do you think the motivation for South Carolina in supporting this initiative, um, beyond the obvious, like, help to individual people, do you think at the end of the day, there's also a money thing, right? If if babies are not born prematurely and they're not in the NICU for two weeks, that that's a positive for South Carolina in terms of being able to pay their health care bills. There is. You know, I think the money definitely matters along with the health outcomes. You know, when I talked to the doctor, this um, OBGYN based in Greenville, South Carolina, she started doing this in her clinic and then she brought it to the state Medicaid program and said, we should do this all across South Carolina And a lot of the argument she made was financial. It is really, really expensive to have babies in the NICU. It's not just bad for their health, but, you know, you're going to rack up a lot of bills for the Medicaid program. In South Carolina, Medicaid is paying for about half of all births that are happening in the state. So, you know, they saw it as both a health outcomes win, but also a financial win if they could have, you know, if you could on the front end, you know, invest in these visits that are relatively cheap. You know, you're talking about one nurse leading a dozen women in conversation versus having all these high costs on the back end of having premature babies who need really specialized, really expensive care. John, when you hear that story, you know, we think about like the states as the laboratories of democracy. Do you feel like states are like, you know, nobody's coming to help us. We are also the laboratories of health care. If we want to help outcomes, but also help costs, we have to do it. Well, I think it is hard for states to be the laboratories of healthcare because sometimes you have to invest a lot of resources to learn. I think what Sarah's described is a wonderful example of a state as a laboratory. If it turned out this didn't work, they wouldn't wouldn't cost them a lot of money. Um, if you think about the ultimate example of a state as a laboratory for healthcare, which is Romney Care, that was a very expensive for Massachusetts to run that experiment. So I think it's great if we think about states and cities as laboratories. I think we have to recognize that the, the dollar clout you need comes at the federal level. And I, I go back to what happened, you know, after we passed Romney Care in Massachusetts. Many states around the country were very interested in having similar programs. I work quite closely with Governor Schwarzenegger in California, try to put this program in. And they all realized it was just too expensive. And at the end of the day, you needed the federal government through Obamacare to come in and do it. So I love Sarah's example. I think there's we can learn a lot from the states, but I think we don't want to be too overly optimistic about the states as laboratories here because ultimately they don't necessarily have the financial clout to really make major investments in that way. Hmm. Um, tell me, do you see things on the state level interesting that, that sort of intrigue you in terms of like going forward? Yeah, the one I'm most excited about is one I'm involved in, 
which is the state of Louisiana and their proposal to eliminate hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is one of the most significant chronic illnesses in America, kills thousands of people a year. And like many chronic diseases, it can be managed, but until now, never really cured. A few years ago, they actually invented a cure for hep C. It's sort of a miracle. Savaldi was the first one that was invented by the drug company Gilead. And literally, it cured a chronic disease. I mean, it's sort of unprecedented. And it was expensive. It was $84,000 a year. But by any economist's calculation, a bargain. If you think about the value of the lives we save with this drug, it was a bargain. So um, I got a call from a reporter from the Wall Street Journal say I was talking to the head of Health and Human Services in Louisiana, and she was complaining about how much Chivaldi cost. And I said, tell her to shut up. It's a miracle. Uh, she should stop <laughs> complaining. So an hour later, she called me. Uh, she's a very forward-looking progressive policy analyst named Rebecca Gee. And she called me. She said, you don't know what you're talking about. We can't afford it. And we want to cure hep C, but how can we do that if we can't afford it? And so she put together a team of which I was, quite frankly, a late joiner. It's really my idea in any way, shape, or form to try to think about a very innovative way to finance this, which is a subscription model or Netflix model, whereas they're going to say to drug companies, we're going to open bidding. The bidding is for how little money will you wipe out hep C in our state? So we want to know, currently Louisiana spends about $35 million dealing with the hep C problem. We want to say, well, for $35 million or less, will you give us as much as we need of this drug to wipe out hep C? Now, from the drug company's perspective, they still make a ton of money because the marginal cost of these drugs is like 100 bucks. So even, at even if it takes thousands of doses at $35 million, they still make a lot of money. For Louisiana's perspective, it's only a win because they won't spend any more than they spent before, but they can wipe out the disease. So it's the most innovative approach I've seen to dealing with the drug pricing problem we have in America, which is to say, let's move from this pay-per-unit model towards the subscription model, and let's actually wipe out this disease in the state. It's incredibly innovative. So, so where are they in terms of saying, hey, what drug company is going to help so, us so wipe they, out hep they C? So they put out a request for information. Uh, a couple of drug companies responded. A couple of the makers, you know, there's really only three major makers of these drugs. All three responded positively. The state's currently in negotiations with CMS, with the government, about how to make this work, because this would be a radical new pricing model for drugs. Uh, this has never been done before. But the Trump administration has been, to their credit, responsive to thinking about this approach. And I think if it works, it could be a model to actually leading to eradicating this disease in America. It's really quite impressive. Hmm. Um, Sarah, if we kind of step way back here, how much do you think that, like, access to good food and access to exercise and, and uh, you know, sort of good, decent housing, how much are those things connected to, to good health care? And how much do states see them uh, as connected to health care? I think they're connected, but they can also be pretty tricky issues to tackle. So I think it is certainly the case if you you know don't have the place or ability to exercise, if you're not eating healthy food, if you don't have like a place to live where you feel safe, all of those things are going to undermine your health. And I think we've you know really seen a lot of focus on these social determinants of health over the past decade or so. I think the challenge is how do you fix those problems? Because we're, a lot of times we're talking about a lot of really interconnected factors of having housing security, food security, you know, personal security, all those things are tying together. You know, we did an episode of our show this year kind of looking at two different ways cities are trying to change eating habits to get people to eat healthier. One of them was increasing food access. We looked at a program in New York City that worked with local bodegas and corner stores to put healthy foods into their shelves. And it 
turns out it just wasn't that effective. Even like when I go into a corner store, a candy bar is still more delicious usually than an (laughs) apple. Um, It can just putting the food there. What we saw is that putting the food out there didn't seem to be enough to motivate behavior change because there's all these other things going on. Right. You know, another policy example from the other side, I think of that as the carrot, the stick version of this is soda taxes, Mm -hmm. which we've seen really cropping up in a lot of places over the past few years. And we looked at, you know, Chicago actually created a soda tax in last summer that was seemed to be working, that the data we have suggests that soda taxes do reduce soda consumption, that they are successful in improving public health outcomes, but they are incredibly unpopular. You know, it's not just like putting out apples on the shelf. It's, you know, making your soda cost 10, 20, 30 cents more. We saw the backlash against Michael Bloomberg. People just like, Mm -hmm. I think, innately didn't like to be told what to do, right? People didn't like to be told what to do. And in Chicago, the backlash got so fierce that they repealed their soda tax three months after it started. (laughs) It was just unsustainable. So it's it's an important area, but it's a tricky area because you're kind of getting into people's decisions about what do I eat? What is my life like? I talked to one of the council members in Chicago who has been on the board for decades and said, I have passed so many taxes and I've never seen a backlash like the backlash we saw to the soda tax. Sarah, you talked before about how Democrats, though they may have run on health care, represent a wide spectrum of views on health care. Um, and I want to play you a, a clip from um, Gavin Newsom, who it was elected governor of California. And um, this is him from a debate uh, last year. And he's talking about his support for, in California at least, having uh, universal care. I think there's a lot of mythology about the cost of single payer, that somehow we're adding on top of an existing multi-payer system when in fact it's about reallocating existing resources and using them more effectively and more efficiently by replacing the current multi-payer system. The fact is we're already spending $367.5 billion a year on health care, according to UCLA, in this state, 70% of it borne by the taxpayers. Sarah Cliff, I wonder how much traction you think this movement towards essentially covering everybody um, is going to get. Yeah, you know, I often expect if we're going to do single payer, that it would be very plausible for me to see us starting with one state and then expanding nationwide, just like we did with Romney Care into Obamacare. But I think kind of going back to some of John's comments, you know, there's a few things that make it hard to do this on a state level. And the biggest one is that reallocation that Gavin Newsom is talking about. It is, you know, seems to be true that maybe a single payer system would cost us a little bit less, but it's really going to change who pays what for health care. And that becomes a really big hurdle. It often asks, you know, larger companies, employers to spend more, the wealthier to spend more so that we can help subsidize health care coverage for lower income Americans. And, you know, I think the last state that made a real serious push at single payer was Vermont in 2014 and 2015. And they passed a bill that they were, you know, going to do single payer. The governor signed it. They worked on it for about two years until they finally got to the point of figuring out, okay, how are we going to pay for this? And they realized it would require such significant tax increases that they backed off and abandoned the effort. And it is true. 
you know, Vermonters would not have had to pay their private premiums anymore, but you would have had these really big tax increases that, you know, reallocate who is paying for health care. And I think that's the really hard part of doing this. The other hard part of doing this on a state level is that you're working with a lot of programs, particularly like Medicare, run by the federal government, that are out of your control. But I think if there's any state to watch on single payer this year, it's probably California. Mm -hmm. They seem like they've done the most work on it, that they have the most support on it. Um, So, you know, maybe California is kind of like a mini country at this point. So (laughs) maybe they will be able to pull it off out there. John, it's interesting because, like, it's really popular in some places to say, let's cover everybody. Not super popular to say, let's really raise your taxes. Well, I mean, it's it's a bit scarring because Sarah told the story. She didn't mention that I was the person who brought the bad news about how much it would cost to Vermont. <laughs> so I, I was the person who was charged in Vermont with figuring out what it would cost. So the good news was that total health care spending in Vermont would fall by at least 10 percent if we put in single payer. The bad news is to pay for it, they would have had to double the entire tax base of the state of Vermont. Double now, how could that be? How if, can that be? I mean, if what you're paying great, for is less. Great, great question. It's because when we move to single payer, we replace a hidden tax with an explicit tax. The hidden tax is the fact that our employers today all pay us less because they give us health insurance. That's a hidden tax. If we say to employer, we could say to people, the good news is your employer won't give you health insurance anymore. That means they can pay you more. The bad news is now you're going to have big, high new taxes to pay for it. People don't trust the former. They just focus on the latter. I think single payer is a lot of promise to it, but I still believe single payer advocates have not come up with a solution to this fundamental problem that it's hard to switch from a hidden tax to an explicit tax. And that's what sunk things in Vermont hmm. was basically once you realized the size of the tax it was going to take, people just weren't willing to go there. Hmm. Let's talk about uh, one more kind of initiative. We've been talking a lot about states and their decisions. But there was an interesting sort of private initiative announced a few months ago. This is an alliance between Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase. It, the initiative has been run by Atul Gawande, who um, a doctor, a lot of people know, who has uh, written a lot about how to improve health care. John, I mean, this initiative, I should say, has been shrouded in a certain degree of secrecy. But you've got more than a million employees. Not, not They're not all in the U.S., but these are three companies with a lot of power, and there's no nothing to say they couldn't corral more uh, companies into their sort of group here. What do you make of the fact that they're like, we're just not happy with the healthcare situation. We're we're going to try to do something to change it. These are empl- huge employers run by really smart people, but what's the innovation? And I think really, in some sense, I think about this new entity. The question is, are they going to go in directions where they can exploit those million people? and incrementally move in the right direction. So, for example, we have found there's ways you can aim them towards more productive and less expensive providers. They could do that within their population. On the other hand, if they're going to say we're going to renovate well, we're going to change the way people think about wellness, well, good luck. I mean, that just hasn't worked. And if anyone could do it, maybe they can do it, but I'm not optimistic. So I think that the question is, are they going to stay within their wheelhouse and say we've now got a million lives to play with to figure out different ways to innovatively move forward incrementally controlling health care costs. I think that's great. If they say we're going to invent some new program that's going to make everybody healthier, forget it. <laughs> um, Sarah, what do you make of employers now, at least a few big ones, saying we want something different here than what we're seeing? Yeah, I, I, I agree with a lot of what John said, that it's just really hard to evaluate what's going on because we have so few specifics on what this partnership looks like and, you know, such a wide breadth of companies, just even just within these three being involved in it. So you could see it going 
in a lot of directions. I think they've hinted, at least from the coverage I've seen, that this is going to be something about leveraging all these employees that they have. And, you know, it is it is employers who are often stuck with a decent amount of the health care bill. And, you know, they are the ones who deal with the angry calls to HR when, you know, something isn't covered or our premiums are going up significantly, our deductibles going up. So that would be one motivation for them to change up their system, to create something that works a little bit better. But at the same time, if we're talking about an initiative that's just focused on the employees of these companies, then I don't know how wide reaching or kind of disruptive that's going to be for the larger healthcare system. I mean, all that being said, though, I would say Atul Gawande is a fantastic thinker and leader and, you know, really has done a lot of impressive research. And I, you know, once I learned that he was involved in this, it kind of gave it a lot more credibility. Like maybe they're going to come up with something really cool. Yeah, I just want to follow up because I I think there's a hugely positive aspect of this, which is the federal government's paralyzed right now. States are budget limited. The real innovation should come from the employer sector. These are the people who are bearing the out-of-control health care costs in America. Most Americans have employer-sponsored insurance. So I think the great news here is employers stepping up to the bat. Whether it'll work or not, the fact that employers are saying we want to commit to being innovative is so important because I think they need to be the leaders. This is for either of you. You know, there's sort of one group of people we haven't talked about at all, which is, well, a couple of groups, but we haven't really talked that much about doctors or hospitals or insurance companies, like that whole piece of things. Are are they concerned about out of control healthcare costs and the fact that healthcare is eating up more and more of our national budget? Is there innovation coming out of that space? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I am always stunned at how non-innovative insurers are. Uh, and I think the answer is they don't need to be. They just pass it through. They're just they view themselves as bill payers uh, and they just pass it through. And if costs go up, then the employers just pay more. And what do they care? So I think insurers have not led on cost control. Ultimately, I'm not sure what their incentive is going to be to do so unless employers really pressure them. So I think employers need to put the pressure on. Now, let me say, I think insurers have a huge amount of potential because they have huge amounts of data they can use to move forward. So I think I hope insurers will be innovative. I'm just not sure that they what what's going to change their way they do business. I think as to providers, you know, their incentives are all the opposite. You know, providers, their incentives are all to increase costs. Um, what is in it for a provider to lower costs? I and mean, providers, I'm sure, would like to have higher quality, but there's no return to a provider to, to lower costs. So I think that we can't look to them for leadership. It's really got to come from insurers, employers, and ultimately, hopefully, the public sector. From the people who pay the bills yeah, is really exactly. what you're saying. Finally, I, I wonder from both of you, when you uh, think about you know a couple years out, do you think it's going to be the ballot initiatives? Is it going to be experimentation in states? Um, is it going to be deals done on the national? Where, where do you think real change in healthcare is going to come from? Wow, that's a hard one. I guess I start from a level of sort of overall pessimism about the next few years. At the federal level, I feel like Republicans aren't interested and Democrats feel burned, even with the recent turnaround. Uh, So I don't see a lot of federal initiative. I think states are going to do innovative things. But as I said, they're limited by these fiscal constraints. You know, to my mind, in the foreseeable future, if real innovation is going to happen, it's going to be on the employer and hopefully insurer, insurer space. In the longer run, I think the public sector does need to lead. If you look at the really significant interventions that have improved our health system over time, dating back to the federal government in introducing the prospective payment system under Medicare in 1983, which started the whole country towards a more rational way of paying hospitals all the way through the Affordable Care Act. It's been the federal sector that's led. 
And so I hope – my hope is that within a few years we get back to a point where the federal government can lead again on this topic. Hmm. Sarah, what do you think? What do you see? Yeah, you know, I also see a really strong role for the public sector, you know, both at the federal and the state level. When I think back to that program I covered in South Carolina, you know, the only reason that expanded was because of South Carolina's program saying this is important and we want this to be something that all our patients have access to. So I think without, you know, that kind of leadership, it's really hard to see much innovation happening. But I think, you know, one of the reasons I would expect some change over the next few years is even after the Affordable Care Act, there's just such frustration with the high prices in the American healthcare system. Patients are getting a lot more exposed to those prices because deductibles have been rising very, very significantly over the past decade. So I think that that increase in deductibles, it is a hard thing for patients to bear. And I think it is possibly catalyzing some action around the cost of health care as us as consumers become more aware of the really high prices that we're being charged. Sarah Cliff is a senior policy correspondent at Vox. She's also the host of the podcast, The Impact. And John Gruber is an architect of the Affordable Care Act. He's also a professor of economics at MIT. Thank you so much to both of you. This was a great discussion. Thanks. Thanks so much, Kara. And by the way, if you want to hear more about the program in South Carolina that Sarah just referred to, which reduces rates of premature births, we will have a link to the reporting that she's done on it on her podcast. It's at our website, innovationhub.org. 